I think well, you're kind of left out of yeah. All right, I think we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, I'm Jennifer Gonzalez, the Director of Social Justice here at St. Michael. And uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, this evening for our fall social justice lecture. You chose us over the Astros, so that's a huge honor. So thank you so much. Um, before we begin, I'd like to open with a prayer. So in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And dear God, thank you so much for this opportunity to hear Emma and John speak on the death penalty and as Catholics, what we're called to do. Um, give us open hearts and ears and minds. Um, let us hear the, the words inspired by the Holy Spirit that they, that they, they fill us with tonight. And um, may we be able to use this knowledge going forward. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so with that, I'd like to introduce our two speakers for tonight. Um, we have Emma Taki. She is the Associate Director of Community Engagement for Catholic Mobilizing Network, a national organization that mobilizes Catholics and all people of goodwill to value life over death, to end the use of the death penalty, and to transform the U.S. criminal justice system from punitive to restorative. After obtaining her bachelor's degree in political science and gender studies from the College of St. Benedict in Minnesota, Emma moved to Seattle, Washington for a year of service with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, Northwest. Upon completing JVC, Emma spent a year with Network Lobby in Washington, D.C., working for social and economic issues as a grassroots mobilization associate. In her current role at Catholic Mobilizing Network, Emma facilitates relationship building between the larger death penalty movement and Catholic Church leadership. In collaboration with state and national partners, Emma provides insight into Catholic messaging, promotes the use of CMN educational resources, and strategizes the most effective way that CMN can support and enhance local state repeal campaigns. Our other speaker tonight is John Sage. He is the founder and executive director of Bridges to Life. He is a native Houstonian, a graduate from our St. Michael School, and holds a Bachelor of Science and MBA from LSU. He is a parishioner of St. Michael with Francis, his wife of 49 years. They have two sons, two daughter-in-laws, and four grandchildren. John founded Bridges to Life as a result of the 1993 murder of his younger sister. Bridges to Life utilizes the assistance of victim volunteers who, through their program, go into prisons to show inmates the dramatic impact crime has on our communities. This process has proven to significantly reduce the recidivism rate of offenders and thereby affect a consequent reduction in crime. Since 2000, Bridges to Life has experienced significant growth with over 49,000 inmate graduates and 2,800 volunteers, and programs in over 170 prisons and alternative facilities. Bridges to Life is considered to be a model restorative justice program with a well-developed and seasoned curriculum, which has been used in 12 states and six foreign countries. Bridges to Life reduces crime, saves lives, and millions of taxpayer dollars, and helps make our community a safer place to live. The program has been recognized for numerous awards and received significant media coverage over the years for this unique work. 
So without further ado, I give you Emma Taki and John Sage to present to you, to us tonight. Let's talk about the death penalty. What are Catholics called to do? Uh, ladies, ladies first. Uh, Great. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And thank you, everyone, for being with us this evening. I understand there's an Astros game, so I, I see the competition. Um, but I'm, I'm so happy to be here. And thank you, Jennifer, for the wonderful invitation. And John, thank you so much for agreeing to, to co-present with me this evening. I'm so grateful. OK. So like Jennifer said, um, Catholic Mobilizing Network is a national organization um, that works with Catholics and all people of goodwill to value life over death, um, to end the use of the death penalty. Um, in 2005, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops launched their campaign to end the use of the death penalty. In 2008, um, in a collaboration of murder victims, family members, women religious, including Sister Helen Prejean, author of Dead Man Walking, um, USCCB staff, and death penalty abolitionists, um, they, they convened and worked out a plan to help carry out the USCCB's campaign to end the death penalty. As a result of that convening in 2009, uh, Catholic Mobilizing Network was established as a sponsored ministry of the Congregation of St. Joseph. And Archbishop Fiorenza in Houston um, was named as the Episcopal moderator for the organization. And our founder, um, some of you may know her, uh, Miss Karen Clifton, um, longtime Houstonian who now lives in Washington, D.C., but still is very much Texan um, <laughs> and a great mentor of mine. So our mission is to, to amplify the church's pro-life teaching on capital punishment. And we do this through a three-pronged approach, um, education, advocacy, and prayer. We collaborate with a wide range of partners, including state anti-death penalty groups. Here in Texas, we work with the Texas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty, um, death row exonerees, murder victims' family members, and national abolition strategy coalitions, state Catholic conferences, diocesan offices, parishes, religious orders, Catholic schools, and prison chaplaincy <coughs> and ministries. So I've said, you know, we, we work to mobilize Catholics on the church's teaching around the death penalty, but what exactly is the teaching? For a long time, the official Catholic church teaching maintained that the death penalty um, was only appropriate under the very rare circumstances that a death penalty um, or a death sentence would be the only way of safeguarding the common good, meaning if there is not a prison that could keep someone who had done great harm from the rest of society, then and only then would the death penalty be permissible. Um, but as standards of decency have evolved throughout time and societies have ensured structures in place to protect one another from individuals who have caused great harm, uh, the church's three most recent popes have made public statements over the past 30 years or so <coughs> calling for the worldwide abolition of the death penalty. Which accumulated in... Last year, on August 2nd, 2018, building on the teaching of Pope St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI, Pope Francis and the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith formalized that the death penalty is inadmissible. The revised text of the Catholic Catechism now reads, there is an increasing awareness that the dignity of the person is not lost even after the commission of very serious crimes. In addition, a new understanding has emerged of the significance of penal sanctions imposed by the state. Lastly, more effective systems of detention have been developed, 
which ensure the due protection of citizens, but at the same time, do not definitively deprive the guilty of the possibility of redemption. Consequently, the church teaches, in the light of the gospel, that the death penalty is inadmissible because it is an attack on the inviolability and dignity of the person, and she works with determination for its abolition worldwide. And I'm just curious, it's always interesting when I go around the country giving presentations, speaking with parishes and diocesan offices. Um, for those of you in the room, who, who heard about the catechism revision when it was announced? Um, and, or is this new information to anyone in the room? So, heard it, heard it when it was announced or soon after? I think I did. I mean, yeah. I think I knew it was there. I don't remember it specifically, but I was aware. Great, good. New information for anyone? I actually met with a priest this morning, and he, he didn't know. I mentioned the Catechism Revision, and he said, oh, yeah, what, like, what does that say? So I, it's not often that I have the chance to, to be the educator when it's a priest conversation. Excuse me, what is the revision? It was the... the but you say there is a revision, so what, what did it say before? So before, I don't have the exact text, but before the... Um, the framing was the death penalty was admissible only under circumstances if there are no other ways to keep society safe. Under this one, it says the death penalty is inadmissible in all cases. So now that we've um, reviewed how, how Catholic Mobilizing Network is set up and what the Catholic Church's teaching on the death penalty is, I'll provide a sneef, uh, brief snapshot of the current state of the death penalty in our country to show you why it's so crucial that we as a church collectively raise our voices to end the death penalty. Um, and then I'll hand things off to John. One more question. What yeah. year was that revision made? 2018, last was, August. Oh, or I guess year? the August before. 2018. 2018. Just last August. August. A little over a year ago. Yes, yeah. I was making a salad when I heard the news. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hear about it until yeah. you told me at dinner tonight before we missed. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm here to spread the word. Okay. So, these, uh, these are the numbers of all the executions that have taken place since 1976 which is considered the modern era of the death penalty. Um, in 1972, the Supreme Court of the U.S. declared that the death penalty was unconstitutional based on the way it was imposed. This was in 1972. States were able to get around that scoutist ruling by revising state statutes. In 1976, the Supreme Court responded to these changes by declaring that the death penalty could be constitutional under some circumstances. Basically, the, the Supreme Court said to the states, well, you figure it out. Like, you as states figure out whether or not you're going to have the death penalty. So a lot of states um, gladly took up that challenge and um, instituted their own state death penalty. Despite the court specifying that the death penalty was unconstitutional if applied to mentally and intellectually disabled individuals or children, states still regularly condemn uh, the mentally ill to death. And you can see this is this breaks it down state by state. So we know, you know, like some, like a lot of most executions have taken place in Texas. Uh-huh. Idaho, where I'm from, only three executions. Um, our last execution was I think in 2010. Um, and California actually has the largest death row on the Western Hemisphere, um, which is 
interesting to a lot of people because they consider California to be really um, progressive. Um, so realizing that there's such a huge death penalty population um, is shocking. What you just said about the mentally ill, could mm -hmm. you repeat that? I didn't know Sure, that. sure. Um, despite the court specifying that the death penalty was unconstitutional, if applied to mentally and intellectually disabled individuals, mm -hmm. states still condemn them to death. So they still have condemned uh, you know, mentally ill? Yes, and we'll, we'll touch on that briefly okay. um, in a little Thank bit. You. But it's interesting because, you know, states were supposed to come up with their own kind of protocol of like, well, like who, like who is mentally ill? Yeah. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so some of the states, like Texas, for example, the, the definition of what it means to be mentally ill were very um, kind of murky, mm -hmm. which allowed for a lot of room for executing people who had a mental illness. Okay, here is a breakdown of the states with and without the death penalty. The red are states with the death penalty. Um, the light blue are states that have abolished the death penalty. And the, the kind of darker blue are states that are in a governor-imposed moratorium. Are people familiar with the term governor-imposed moratorium? No. Okay. I'm in, I'm in such a bubble at my job that I forget like what is common knowledge and what is not so common knowledge. Um, so a governor-imposed moratorium means when a governor takes office in a state, they can say, you know, under my term as governor, there will be no executions under my watch. Um, so California was the most recent governor-imposed moratorium. Um, this past March, Governor Newsom, newly elected, declared a governor-imposed moratorium. And he's, he's Catholic and has a lot of uh, Jesuit influence. Um, so we liked that. We liked that from him. How many of those states have life without parole? Or are you going to get to that later? Mm. I think most of, them, most of them do by now. So hasn't California been commuting some of those sentences, death sentences, to life without parole? Yes, okay. yes. And they have a very large life without parole. We've worked with some of them out there. Right. I would like to make a comment, not now, later, okay. about life without parole and death penalty. Oh. But not now. Please continue. Okay, all right. I, I, will love, I would love to hear it. This is um, just an observation. Okay. And we, I should have said this earlier, but we will have time for um, questions and answers after, after John shares. Okay. But it's, it's more fun for me to interact like this, <laughs> but for the sake of time. It's more efficient. Yes, yes, you understand. Um, so 21 states have abolished the death penalty. Um, the most recent one was New Hampshire in May 2019, which was fascinating because they had been trying to abolish their death penalty for 20 years. Wow. And every single year they had put a repeal bill through the state legislature. And the main person behind, like kind of leading the efforts was a man named Rennie Cushing. Man named Rennie Cushing, he's still living. Um, but he, his father was murdered many years ago. Um, and then his brother-in-law was. And Rennie always said, I heard him speak a couple weeks ago, and he said, I wanted to live in a world where life was respected. And I didn't see by having the death penalty how life could be respected. Um, so I digress. Okay, so while this map shows a whole lot of red, it makes it seem like we use the death penalty all the time in the country. But actually, only 2% of counties are responsible for 59% of death row. This shows how geographically isolated the death penalty is. Not all states impose death sentences and carry out executions at the same rate. For example, let's see, um, a state like... I'll use Idaho again, 
we haven't used the death penalty in, in many years. Um, and I think there are maybe like 10 or so people on our death row. Um, in New Hampshire, the state that just repealed their death penalty, they didn't even have a, a death chamber. And there was only one person on death row, and they hadn't executed anyone in several years, several, several years. But, yes. you know, in Texas, I, mm -hmm. I believe there's only one place where they execute, and that's Huntsville. Yes, that's right. So I guess what you're saying there is those are the counties that have assessed the death penalty. Right. Yeah. Yes, the yes, these are the counties that have, have the highest, have really high, or these are the counties where the death sentencing takes place. And then well, in Huntsville. Huntsville is not there. Huntsville right. is the place. Huntsville is the location where the executions uh, take the place. UR, which yes. is a very different thing from imposing the, 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 yes. the death penalty in that location. Yes, very good, yes. It's Harris County and Dallas. Yes, and Bear County. And? Bear County as well. San Antonio. Yes. Oh yeah, over there, yes. Looks like El Paso as well. Yeah, El Paso, that's a surprise. A little bit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but what is that big block over here? Is that California? And that, the, that is California. California. Yes. And that is Florida over there. Uh -huh. Yes, um, yeah, Nevada is also, um, also has a, a, a county with high rates of death yes. sentencing. Now, death sentencing is not the same as the rate of executions. So a place like Nevada, they haven't executed anyone in several years, but the, the rate of handing down death sentences is higher it's than high. most counties. Yes. And what happens with those persons who have been condemned to death and they just, they just die in prison? A lot of times they just languish on death row. Is that also very Christian and very... No, it is not. No, it is not, sir. There's a lot of hypocrisy in those discussions. No, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, no arguments from me there. Um, so this year, this is a map of the executions that have taken place this year. Um, and as you'll see from, from both slides, only a handful of states, um, as usual, have been responsible this year for the majority yeah. of executions. Uh -huh. And yeah, you'll notice they're concentrated in the South. Um, and as you'll note, Texas is responsible for seven of the 16 executions that have taken place this year. Five more executions are scheduled to take place in the state by the end of 2019, um, so in just a couple months. And in Texas, the cost of an average death penalty case is nearly three times higher than imprisoning someone for life without the possibility of parole, which is reflective um, of the death penalty across the country. People often think, well, we'll just kill them, save the state a bunch of money, but actually the death penalty is extraordinarily more expensive appeals, than life. The, with appeals. the appeals and the initial trialing as well, the, the sentencing of, you know, are we going to give this person eligible for a death sentence? A death sentence. You have to bring in all these experts, and the trials often last weeks, sometimes months. Um, and prisoners um, sentenced to death in Texas are executed at a rate triple the national average. So I know these numbers from Texas are concerning, but even in Texas, the current rate at which the death penalty is used and imposed is declining. Um, the state's death row population, hovering at around 216 people right now, is the smallest it's been since the 1980s. Additionally, new death sentences in Texas have decreased drastically since peaking in 1999, um, when jury sentenced 48 people to death in that year. In 2018, new death sentences remained in the single digits for the ninth time in 10 years. 
So even, even in Texas, we, see, we do see really encouraging things around how often the death penalty is used. It's declining. Okay. So we often think, well, you know, the death penalty is reserved for the worst of the worst. Um, but really, there are several factors that come into play when we determine who gets a death sentence and who doesn't. And the biggest factor um, that comes into play is the race of the victim. Racial bias against defendants of color and in favor of white victims has a strong effect on who is capitally prosecuted, sentenced to death, and executed. And we see this is a reflection of the greater criminal justice system. Um, you know, the death penalty kind of highlights everything wrong with the rest of the justice system. 76% yes. um, of death row defendants have been executed for killing white victims, even though African Americans make up about half of all homicide victims. African Americans are overrepresented on death row. They make up 13% of the US population, but constitute 42% of death row. Um, and I mentioned how much, this. How much percentage? They, so they make up 13% of the US the population, population, but 42% on death row. Wow. Um, yes. Does that have, perhaps have something to do with the number of crimes they commit? No. Race. 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 Give you. Um, other concerning biases of who is sentenced to death row, we just mentioned this, um, include people living with a mental illness. In 2018, more than 70% of the people executed showed evidence of serious mental illness, brain damage, intellectual impairment, or chronic abuse and trauma. And also another thing to mention is, you often see it's people who grew up in, in poverty under really adverse circumstances who are sentenced to death row. Um, and a lot of times when you grew up in poverty or if you, have, um, if you can afford a really good trial attorney, you often will not get a death sentence, depending on how good your representation is. What does the red line mean? So the red line shows um, the race of a victim through time. So the, the red line shows the, the rate of white victims. And you see it really peaked in 1999 when executions were really, was and really the, high. And the blue one? And the blue line, that shows um, black victims. That's the victim of an execution, executed person. No, this is the, the victim of, of the crime oh, the that crime. got someone on death row. Oh, no, yes. but, but is it the victims of those executed or the victims of those given death sentences? Oh. There's a difference. I mean, uh, yeah. Sorry, John, can you, can you clarify? Say that again? Okay. If, is that the victims of anyone given a death sentence? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. But Thank you. I'm just, I'm just to quibble with the words. Is that a correct expression to say that somebody sentenced to death is a victim? Maybe it's a victim of the judicial system. Mm -hmm. The victim is the person who yes. lost his death at the hands of that person. Yes, so, so to clarify, when in this kind of conversation, when we say victim, we're talking about the, the person who was murdered outside of an execution. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much. You're welcome, you're welcome. In addition to taking into account all of those factors that show how the death penalty flies in the face of the Catholic Church's call to honor the God-given dignity of all humans, we haven't even touched on the disturbing reality that innocent people have been sentenced to death. Currently, 166 people have been exonerated from death row in the United States. And the rest are none? In the other states, none? Correct, yep. 
many of those states um, have repealed the death penalty or no longer have it. These are, um, these are the names and faces of the individuals who were released last year due to evidence of their wrongful conviction. Although the increasing use of DNA evidence has been able to confirm the innocence or guilt in capital cases, um, oftentimes DNA testing is not available in every case. Who knows how many people we've been ex who have been executed that are innocent. Um, as you can see, the death penalty truly does deny the dignity of the human person and is contrary to building a culture of life. However, slowly but surely, the past several years have shown a decline in public support for the death penalty. A 2018 Pew survey found that 54% of Americans are in favor of the death penalty, while 39 oppose it. Catholic support for the death penalty falls a little under general population support, at 53% of Catholics being in favor of capital punishment. So clearly we, have our work, we still have work to do, um, but we're getting there. The 2018 Gallup poll found that fewer than half of Americans, just 49%, now believe that the death penalty is applied fairly. That was the lowest level since the Gallup began asking the question in 2000. Um, so overall support for the death penalty is declining in the recent years. <clears throat> uh, momentum in the movement to end the death penalty has been gaining um, the past 10 years. Here are just a few examples. Um, in addition to declining rates of death sentences, several states from New Mexico to Delaware, from Illinois to New Hampshire, have abolished their death penalty. And just to give you an overview, um, here are a few states we're looking at for the next legislative session in terms of um, states that could repeal the death penalty in the next uh, couple years. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, bipartisan bills coming through state legislators, both Democrats and Republicans, who are co-sponsoring bills to repeal their state's death penalty. So it's not, it's not a partisan issue as much anymore. Both, all sides of the aisle are saying the death penalty is wrong and we should end it. Okay, now normally, this is where I would kind of end this part of the presentation and talk. We'd go straight to John and have like a personal testimony or story to share. But I really, I have to mention this troubling uh, development from uh, the Department of Justice. Um, on July 25th of this year, the US Department of Justice announced plans to resume the practice of capital punishment at the federal level. It had been 16 years since the federal government last conducted an execution. Four federal death row inmates are currently facing execution dates as early as December 9th, and each has exhausted their appeals. Each one of what? Has exhausted their appeals. A new lethal injection protocol has been proposed consisting of a single drug, pentobarbital. Litigation around this lethal injection protocol is anticipated in the coming months basically meaning, and I won't get into it all right now, um, but the drug they want to use, they're not sure if it's, um, if it's a legal drug that they're able to use. Uh, and more recently, the Justice Department drafted legislation to speed up the death penalty for mass shooters. Of course, we, we believe as Catholics um, committed to honoring the dignity of all human life, that these actions are wrongheaded and a regression from the remarkable progress made in the US toward death penalty abolition over the past 10 years, which includes dramatic downward trends in the number of annual death sentences and executions. Is this a response to the mass shooting? Um, partly, but it was, the announcement was made in July, and this has been, um, you know, President Trump partly ran on the platform um, that he 
he would bring back the death penalty on a federal level. Uh, so there was a study that was commissioned by President Obama to look into the protocol of how we're executing people on the federal level and say like, you know, find out like what kind of drugs are being used, um, like are, are they okay, are they legal to use? And so that study kind of wrapped up a few months ago and then this announcement was made. And with the presidential elections coming up, although it seems so far until those happen, um, President Trump, we believe, wants to make good on his promise to bring back the death penalty. What, What's that? President Trump wants to do what? He wants to make good on the promise um, oh. that he said he would bring back executions. And there are a couple um, bills in the, the federal um, legislature that would call to like abolish the death penalty on a federal level. But we see these as really symbolic bills. We don't think they'll have a lot of traction or movement um, because they are um, only Democrats have signed on to it. Mm -hmm. And we want a bipartisan bill. Otherwise, it's just it's not going to happen. <laughs> um, so I'll can, wrap. Can you go back to the previous screen, please? Yeah, that can one. Read it all. Yeah. I'm starting to read it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mara. You're welcome. So we, the messaging we're communicating to our, our base and supporters um, is the messaging of the broader abolition movement around federal executions, um, mainly that the federal government should not proceed with any executions because the federal death penalty system is deeply flawed. It reflects the same racial bias that is widely acknowledged as a problem in state death penalty systems. The federal death penalty is not a national punishment applied equally throughout the country and it goes against the rest of the country in scheduling executions. Can you explain the, 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 the last one, please, out of step? So essentially saying, you know, the rest of the country has kind of evolved into we're not, we're not pursuing death sentences, you know, uh, rates of executions are going down. But so the fact that the federal government is coming out out of the gate saying we're going to execute these people um, starting December 9th and we're going to execute four of them within a month. Um, it kind of flies in the face of what the rest of the country yeah. is kind of feeling like, Thank what you. are you doing? Exactly. Thank you. You're welcome. So I, I have talked um, long enough about all of this, and I just, I do want to say that there, there is so much more we could go into, and there's so much more information to share and stories to tell you that show really how deeply broken our criminal justice system is, especially when it comes to the death penalty. But I, I do know that um, John's story and its personal testimonies that really have the power to change hearts and minds. I can give you the facts and the figures, um, but really I, I want to give um, space for John to speak. So, and then after, yes. A couple of questions, sorry, state the first. I'm mm -hmm. very sorry, and please tell Karen, I'm sorry that the church, our parish didn't show up for this, this is mm -hmm. terrible. Uh, the same thing is, and I posed this question to John earlier, you know, a prosecutor says, I'm going to pursue the death penalty. That, to me, is akin to premeditated murder. Mm -hmm. You know, and people ought to understand that. I know. It's, it is murder. It, it is, is murder. And I mean, it's premeditated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We I, often, yes, sir. I very much disagree with the attitude of the prosecutors. Eh? Their goal is to perform justice. Mm -hmm. Not to go and kill somebody or declare somebody guilty. Right. Right. It's to perform or to give or impart justice. That, that's exactly right. But look at the prosecutors right. nowadays. Mm -hmm. They're a bunch of mm -hmm. wackos. 
only thinking on their own personal glory. Right. Well, and, and their very wrong interpretation of what their role is. Yes. Justice is their role. Yeah. And, and remember that the death penalty was created as a way to keep society safe. It was to protect society, saying we don't have any other means to protect you all from this person that just committed this terrible act of murder. So we'll, like, we'll take care of them as the state. We'll kill them. Um, but now you know, we have prisons in place. We have protocols to protect society from people who've caused great harm. So it really, the, death, the current death penalty really does come from um, kind of that gut reaction of, of vengeance and this is justice. Um, fear, too. And fear, and fear, exactly, exactly. They are, yeah, they're, they're state-sanctioned killings. Um, I mean, there's, there's no way around it. So after, so John, John will share, and then uh, um, we'll have some time for questions, and then I will share um, some action steps you can take right now um, that, and then we'll conclude. Okay. Okay. Okay, John. Who are these persons, madam? Just, just, sorry. Okay. Uh, you keep it off, I'll, I'll talk about it. Okay. It's great. Just, I think that's perfect. Who are these persons? Uh, that's my sister. Uh, that's her daughter. That's me, and that's a picture of my sister. And what happened, pardon me? Yeah, I want to talk about that. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for being here tonight, and I appreciate it. I know there's an event going on right now that a lot of Houston people are interested in. The Astros. There'll be more. Uh, there'll be more. And there's always tape. We, we've got it taping right now. Uh, anyway, thank you, uh, Catholic Mobilized Network St. Michael's, for uh, having me here to speak about it. I, uh, I'm going to tell you before I start this talk, I, I do a lot of public speaking about prisons and bridges to life, and we've been, I've been doing this 21 years, and our organization's gotten very large, and it's very, and I'm not really going to talk a lot about that, but it's, it's uh, the largest volunteer organization in prisons in the state of Texas, and it, it's, it's a model restorative justice program, and one of our board members here, we could make an argument is the model restorative justice program in the United States, and maybe the world. So it's, God's really blessed it. But uh, I, I, this is the first time I've ever really spoken about the death penalty. Uh, I've stayed away from it for a couple reasons. Uh, I didn't want it to interfere with our Bridges to Life because our Bridges to Life has nothing to do with it. It's not an issue. We don't take a position on you know, what we do in prisons is, is separate from the death penalty. And because it's such a hot topic, people want to bring that in and I don't want the confusion. Uh, secondly, after one of the trials, I was misquoted in the paper. They took a trailing sentence that, that made me look a lot more vengeful than I was. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was pretty mad, but uh, so you got to be careful. So anyway, with that, uh, I'll start off by telling you, uh, 27 years ago, if you'd asked me what I thought about the death penalty, I probably would say, well, I hadn't thought about it too much, but I'm 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 fine with it. You know, go ahead and execute them. These guys did some terrible things. So I wanted to start that as a baseline. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and then my sister got married 26 and a half years ago. Uh, I want to go into some detail because I'm going to try to put you in my mindset, in my spirit, in my emotions, so you can relate to what my experience is and what some of my opinions that came out of it. I'm not here to tell people they should or should not believe in the death penalty, or you're bad if you do, or you're bad if you don't. I'm not here to do that. I'm, uh, I'm not here to uh, try to convince you of anything. I'm just here to share my experience. 
I've probably thought about the death penalty facing it straight up, and with all the prison work, I've probably thought about it much more than most most people, unless you're doing it like Emma for a for a living, and I'm a lot older than her, so I've thought about it more than her just by years. Uh, my sister was murdered on June 30th, 1993. Uh, it was a random event, two 19-year-old strangers. Uh, uh, one of the killer's brother lived at the apartment complex right over here by where the Houston Post used to be. Not far from here, off Newcastle, in Southwest Freeway, West Park. It happened, we think, about four, 5 o'clock in the evening. Uh, they came, and the way we found out was her daughter came home an hour later and stepped and felt something wet and there was blood and her mother's dead body was there and she called my grandma, my mother, her grandmother, and said, Mama's hurt, Mama's hurt. And so that, they, uh, the evidence showed that they were looking for a, a skinny woman to take her car and go to Bay City, which is 80, 90 miles from here. Uh, the two killers, interesting enough, one was a male, one was a female, and they were both 19. The male was there, he had a homosexual relationship with the brother of the girl. Who lived, the brother of the girl, he lived at the apartments and was a, he wasn't a criminal, he, he was a working guy. And they were staying with him and they wanted to go to Bay City. She wanted to, she had three kids and she wanted to go to Bay City to be with her female lover. So that sort of sets the stage in a way. It was very diverse. She was black, he was white. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of mixed up things there. Uh, they walked, the uh, testimony was that they scared a girl the day before. A blonde-headed lady who testified just broke down bawling on. She was their target the day before and she felt fear and something wrong. And they were actually had a, a stroller with the, the killer's baby in it around the parking lot. And they sped up, and so she ran up her stairs and locked herself in, you know, not knowing to the next day that she was a target. She just felt something was wrong, and she just broke down on the witness stand. They uh, came into the apartment with a little paring knife in their hands. Uh, they confronted my sister, and she came down the hall. They said, we want your car. She saw two kids her own children's age, one of them exactly 19. And she said, no, I'm not going to give you my car. I'll give you some money. And she threw $13 out of her pocket. Then she saw, they didn't say, look, here's the deal, you either give us your car, we're gonna kill you, that, that didn't happen. So they, uh, things accelerated, uh, she started screaming. The guy was a pretty big guy, he got her down, hit her and got her down the floor and put his knees in her shoulders. And then the girl, uh, killer, went and got a whole butcher block of knives from the kitchen. The detectives told me there was six knives on the floor and two playing with my sister. So they uh, hit her with the statue of a child and a, a mother and child that was on the, then they uh, stabbed her with the small knife, I think they stabbed her with another knife, and then he held up, the testimony was he held up the biggest knife and he was sitting there and the girl said, go ahead and do it, and they proved through some fingerprints. She put her hands on top of him and helped plunge the knife through her neck into her back, neck box. And what gave me the most horror of all of it, in a way, uh, she wasn't dead yet, so they took a plastic cleaning bag and wrapped around her head to suffocate her in the midst of all that. So I couldn't sleep for weeks. Just the horror of whether it was five minutes or whatever it was, the horror. And, and just setting up 
which I probably should talk about first. My sister and I had an amazingly close relationship. Uh, we were fourth and fifth in a family, a Catholic Irish family of eight, 19 months apart, one grade apart. We had all the same friends, but we were really soulmates, and you realize that even more when they're gone. <clears throat> so we had all the same friends. We went to St. Grade School together. We went to Brother Sister High School, St. Thomas St. Agnes. We went to LSU together. Shared, she shared my car. You know, she had a set of keys, no, no cell phones in. She'd bring back my car with all my, I put my dirty clothes in there and they'd all be folded and nice and neat. I helped her get her friends dates with some of the football players. And it was just a really warm relationship. The most important thing she ever did was when I was 16, uh, Marilyn was 15, she introduced me to that lady right there. <laughs> right here, this one, this one, this one. In the black, right here. It's my wife, Frances. Uh, that was 55, six years ago. It's kind of a funny story, and I'll get back to the serious part. She, I told the story that somebody heard the other day. Uh, she came home and she said, John, there's these two gorgeous girls in my class. One's a blonde, one's a brunette. Would you go out with them? I said, yeah, I think I'll do that. You're my sister, I'll do that for you. <laughs> I went out with the blonde about five times, and. I'm still going out with the brunette, so we had that, and Francis and her were best of friends. They had a group called the We Five in high school, and they were best of friends, and one other girl wanted to join it, and they wouldn't change the name, so they called it We Five Plus One. The other girls are still known as Plus One. And one of my favorite pictures, I wish I had it here, was exactly one year before she got murdered, they had her 25th high school reunion, and the We Five took a picture. So that, that's, you kind of put yourself and think about somebody you're that close to. And I was her big brother, even, I was older, and I was big, and I was, you know, her protector, so to speak. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> they went in there and stabbed her and left her. And then they went to uh, Bay City. They, they went back into the apartment of her brother and brought the uh, infant, 10-month-old baby, back into the murder scene. My, uh, my wife asked the judge after the first trial, how does someone be a, a killer one minute and a mother the next? And they said, she's not a mother, she just has babies. That was his answer. So it was, it was just beyond bizarre and beyond unnecessary and beyond gruesome. I, mean, it, I remember the detective, the, the big old boy that went to Kerwin High School uh, about my age and that time, and I said, you, you're, you're really personal. He was calling me. I was the contact person. I said, you're really personal. This is really personal with you. You, you investigate. There was a lot of murders in Houston back then. I was at the peak. He said, John, I'll tell you, most murders are, are drug dealers killing each other or somebody fights. He said, he said, there's a few. Very rarely do we have a purely innocent victim and a woman is minding her own business and somebody just attacks, comes in her house, as bad as it had been, they could have hit her, tied her up, taken her car. They were looking for the keys. Why, why do this to a person? And, uh, and then they gave a, a oral testimony. The guy gave a long test, uh, confession. And I remember playing the court. They said, what were the last words? And he said, uh, she said, please don't kill me. I, I have two children. And they said, what'd you do? He said, well, then we cut her throat. <sighs> so you, you're talking about really serious. You're not talking about... You know, you're not talking about a policewoman in Dallas walking in and accidentally killing somebody, which is horrible. You're talking about a, a horrible, horrible 
the detective says this is one of the worst I've ever worked on type case. Okay. So they caught him two days later down in Bay City. They, they had the, they stole a car. It was a Mazda 626 and they had the license. They found the car and they found it in a motel. They killed her on a Wednesday evening. They were brought back during the night on a Friday night, Saturday morning. In fact, the funeral was at 9 o'clock and I got a call at 7 a.m. said, we, we got him, we got him back and the guy gave an oral confession. They kind of used that to get the girl to confess to. So, fast forward, uh, we went through two years of uh, capital murder trials. They were charged with capital murder. They, they didn't know whether they were going to charge with capital murder or not. They checked capital murder, they didn't know whether to charge with death sentence or death penalty or go for what. Uh, they didn't have a lot of priors. They had prior criminal activity but no arrest. Uh, so, they decided that they were going to uh, charge them with capital murder and death penalty. At that time, which I was very upset about, there was no life without parole in Texas. The capital murder had a, a, a sentence, uh, you could be eligible for parole in 35 years. So when they were 54, they would be eligible. I got to tell you, particularly the woman, and those of us who were around her in the Vordire and the trial, really think she's possessed. I mean, and she went to the jail down here in Harris County they had to put her in isolation because the TV, the, the, the came on the court, the, the murder came on the news. She, she started bragging about it. Other criminals were scared of her. They put her in isolation. I, I know for a fact she was because I've had inmates tell me they, they fed her, you know, they put the tray and they said one day she'd be lucid and one day she'd be crazy. So anyway, <laughs> this was kind of the scary. And she was the alpha. She was the leader of the two. So there you go. So. I really felt deep in my heart that she was very capable of hurting people 35 years from now. So here's the option that I was struggling with. Death penalty, potential parole 35 years. And one time I was at a meeting, Bishop Fiorenza was there, I'll just tell you what happened. Before they passed Life Without Parole, he talked about the death penalty. I raised my hand and I said, what do you think about life without parole? And he didn't have much, I said, why don't you work on something you can get done? <laughs> why don't you work on something we can get done? We didn't have that available when my sister was murdered. The DA, the assistant DA told me himself later that 75% of cases that get the death penalty would not get the death penalty if we had life without parole. And I think that statistic has held that or more. So anyway, so uh, I personally was in favor of the death penalty because they didn't want him to get out. They both got sentenced, they both got convicted. The trials lasted about a week. The juries, both in the guilt, innocence, and in the punishment phase, were only out a record amount of time. They out an hour, hour and 10 minutes. And you, you can't even go through the questions any faster than that. The jurors said, because it was so unnecessary and so gruesome, that that's why they did it. They go to death row, uh, the, the male killer, uh, James Dickerson, he died of AIDS uh, five, six years later on death row. Good for him. Yeah, and I was, I was really glad. I, I, I don't understand how glad he's dead. I was so happy he died that way rather than being executed because I didn't want to, I just didn't want to go through that. I really, I really didn't. As much as I wanted him locked up, I didn't want to go through an execution and all that. And had no interest in going and witnessing. Okay, so the girl, it's 26 and a half years, she's still on death row. I'm gonna give you a little her path. Uh, 
She, in 1999 or 98, around the time that they executed Carla Faye Tucker, the first woman executed in 100 years, she told the DAs, I'm waving all my appeals, I want to be executed. And uh, went, to the, went down to the court, they brought her in. I mean, they read it, it was chilling. You will be executed on April 20th, it was 98 or 99. So it was kind of a, uncharted territory, literally, 10 minutes before the execution, she could say, I, I don't think that's a good, I guess that's a good idea. It was totally voluntary. So what happened about a month before the execution, uh, Jesse Jackson came to the prison up in Gatesville and visited her and uh, prayed with her and this, that, and the other. So somebody said, have you talked to the victim's family? He said, no, and they stuck my name and number in front of him. It was on Good Friday and he called and I was at Sam's, French said, well, he's at Sam's, <laughs> and true, and he called back, and we had a conversation, and he put me, he was fine, I don't really have anything against Jesse Jack, but he, you could tell he had a checklist of things, and he put me on hold five times, and I was about ready to say, Reverend, when you got some time, call me back, and we'll talk. But I remember the last thing he said was, was in 98 or 99, he said, maybe me and you go up there and pray with her sometime, and I said, Reverend, I said, Reverend Jackson, I'm not ready to do that yet. So I was just being honest. So anyway, she decided that wasn't such a good idea to be executed. Uh, she's gone through, he, he got a firm out of Dallas to do a lot of pro bono work. You can imagine the millions, the thousands or millions of dollars that were spent on this. They just kept going and going. Meanwhile, she's still on death row uh, up in Gatesville at the Mountain View Unit. So in, in my journey, uh, I went through a spiritual journey for about five years right before I started Bridges to Life, and somebody asked me, did your faith, did your Catholic faith help you? I said, well, my Catholic faith taught me to go where to go when I was in real trouble. And I, I went through a, an enhancement, a, a real journey that enhanced my spiritual position. Uh, I was always a person who went to church and all that, but I, I really uh, went to a place where I was seeking God's will, and God was in my daily life rather than just... Mm -hmm check the box on Sunday, and there's more to it than that, but it, it made a big difference in my life, and I think that was, as I look back, preparation for starting this work we do. So I got to a better place, and I realized that uh, I had forgiven this person, because 2020 called me before that, she was supposed to be executed, and said, well, aren't you excited about it? I said, no, I'm not excited about them killing her. I, I don't know. If that's, if that's what the law says, do it. Uh, and I finally said, look, lady, if you're trying to get somebody who you know, wants to inject the drug, you got the wrong person. She said, well, I'll call you back in a week or so. That was 20 years ago. So, so I told some of that story, and they said, you know, there's a new program called Sycamore Tree. It's going to take family members of victims and meet with offenders, not the offender, but like offenders, in a restorative justice. I never heard the word. And uh, sit and talk to inmates. So I was one of the 12 volunteers that tried this first-of-a-kind program. And we went and we had a one-page outline. And the concept of what we did is, is what we do now, but we expanded and curriculum and all that. So I was very moved by that, and that uh, God just kept talking to me, or pulling on me, and I was riding down the freeway, coming back from Dallas, and I finally just looked up at the sky and said, okay, you're going to have it your way anyway. I'll give this a try. And I met with a friend of mine, Philip Regard. Uh, I said, well, we got an $80,000 budget. He said, well, I'll raise half the money for you. you so he, he did, and then it took, us to, it took us 10 months to raise it. We ran out of money in October the first year. But anyway, that's, that was kind of the start of it. But 
More, more importantly, where was I during all this with the death penalty? I progressively went from a person in favor of the death penalty to kind of a neutral to really a person against the death penalty, and I'll tell you some of the reasons why. I'll tell you one more story, then I'll kind of conclude, uh, ask questions. In 2011 or 12, we, we were going to, Bridges to Life was going to go to the prison where women's death row is, Mountain View. And we always have a meeting with the warden, and we have to get permission for the warden to go, even though the state endorses. And there's a rule that uh, a family member of a victim cannot go on the prison unit where the killer or the, the offender is, not just killers, but uh, without special permission. So they called ahead, and I got permission. So I go in, and I think I'm just going to get in the conference room. Maybe that's it. And there was a little warden about this high. Her name was Warden Black, and she happened to be black, too. She was in her last few years, and me and her just... It kind of, we hit it off. She understood right away. Into uh, uh, my our little pitch, the, my staff person that lives up near there, she said, I don't want you in one prison. I want you in both the prisons. <laughs> so then I said, can you do me a favor? I asked her some questions about er Erica Shepard. I said, can you just take me and show me the building where death row, I, I can't explain this involuntary relationship. But just, I just want to see the building, just the outside. So we go look at where we're going to have our meetings. Then we go... She said, there's a building, and she just starts walking in. So we were walking the building. And it was at the back, it was kind of rectangular, it was at the back, kind of U-shaped, and there was, she explained it before, there's five cells on each side, but I, I didn't think I was gonna get that far. We go up to this counter, there was a couple of guards there. She puts her, just like this, and she looks up at me and says, well, what do you want to do? Like, hey, big boy, what do you want to And it just came out, I said, if you would walk, just walk me through this U, and just let me look look at this person. It really would be meaningful to me. And uh, I, she said, "You got it." So then the guard says, uh, "We have to offer you a bulletproof vest, but we don't have any. It's, it's, a, it's a policy." So me and Lucy, our staff person, she's got a good sense of humor. We said, "Okay, we'll go." So we go down the first row, and there's the, the women. Still, at that time, if they worked, they could get out of their cell on death row. Men can't do it anymore since the escape back in 20 years. So there was only two in the first five or two or three, and uh, I think they were white or black, I don't know, but it was obvious to me they weren't. And Lucy watches all these ID cable shows, and everyone was, most of them have been on, the, you know, they're, they're, you know, one that killed six husbands and buried in the backyard and stuff like that. So yeah. she said, no, Johnny, she wasn't in there. I said, I'll see that. So we got back in the middle room. I, I said, I guess she's in the next side. And the warden black said, yes. And you so mean here, she is the murderess? The murderer. She was in the cell I was fixing to walk by. Uh -huh. So I go and I turn left and walk down this next hall. And, and I, I, I go down, I'm, just, I'm like, me to you from the cell. She comes up to the bars. I knew it was her because they told me she'd put a lot of weight on and she clears her throat. There was only 10 on death row at that time. Clears her throat and I, I just stared at it. It was like a moment, a frozen moment. And uh, I stared at her and I stared at her hands. And I, I was, it was like an emotional. So we walk outside and the warden says, well, did it make you mad there was air conditioning there? I said, warden, I didn't even realize there was. I said, that was, I mean, I was looking back at this cage she was in, it was, about as wide as these three chairs and mm -hmm. probably back to where the girls are and it, it had a, a window but it was all covered in black so it was dark mm -hmm. she only got out of her cell like twice a week and, and I, I really 
I didn't feel sorry for her, but I told the warden I, I, what I saw was sad to me. I think it was sad. But the main thought I had, I looked at these, I said, those hands helped murder my sister. And, and this is uh, just kind of sad. The other thought I had, I, I wouldn't have hurt her or touched her inappropriately uh, if they let me. I mean, I had no desire to hurt her. It, it's like... It's like firing with uh, fake ammunition. <laughs> I mean, it was a live test. And then and I, I drove back to Houston, and it really for the next few days I was in a real contemplative mode. But what it did, it was a confirmation to me that I hadn't 90% forgiven, I had 100% forgiven. And it was, it was another weight lifted off. Yeah. And so it was really good, uh, it was really good. We had asked to meet with her. Uh, we had four people over the years go see her, and she wouldn't agree to meet. The guy, before he died, had agreed to meet, but we never got there. So, anyway, that's kind of how where I went all those years. Do you think she recognized you? I mean, no, she, she knew, she found out later, but she did not rec She did not know. No, we, it was random. I mean, this warden did something that, I bet you no other victim's family's ever done this. I mean, I don't think she got fired if I'd have done something inappropriate. But you know what's amazing? I thought about it later. This warden walked in front of me. I was trying to walk behind me. I saw her about a year later of meeting up in Austin. I just gave her a hug and said, I said, you don't know how that fit. You trusted me so much that you let me do that, and you don't know how much that did for me. Just that three, two-minute moment there. And, uh, so in, in conclusion, I'll tell you some of the reasons that I'm against the death penalty now, and I, I've never publicly spoken that way uh, with a group of people. There's a several levels. Uh, first, take a financial level, which you mentioned. It's not just the, the two or three million dollars. That's one thing. Versus a, let's say, it costs three million versus a million. That's a lot of money, and it's in these lawyers. But think about what she just talked about. All these bills, and Obama had a, a, a survey or experiment or what do you call it? Research the the, the, the medicine, and I mean, we're, we're spending billions of dollars over this death penalty and, and everybody talks about it and worries about it and argues about it. I mean, it, it is, it's just not necessary. If you have a life without parole, in my opinion, it's not necessary. All right, then from a, just a human standpoint, we should be involved in things that are healing for somebody. If they execute her next year, 27 years after, it's not going to do anything for me or my family members. It's not, it's not going to do one, one thing. It, it, it could be negative at this point because I'm obviously not mad. I mean, I, was, I would have killed him myself the first couple of years. But, so it, it waits so long, so nobody comes out ahead. The only person that might come out ahead is the person executed. St. Thomas Aquinas said 500 years ago, it's much. It's a much more of a penalty to leave them in prison their whole life than it is to execute them, and that's. I think that could be true. Of course, life's usually better. And then, just from a spiritual, moral standpoint, I. You know, why do we need to kill some, execute somebody? It's not necessary. As I said, you know, hundreds of years ago, when they, they didn't have big prisons, and this person's going to get loose in the society. Yeah, you, you know, the only way you could keep them from killing somebody was execute them. So. Anyway, uh, I, don't, I don't see any advantage in it from a financial, practical, or moral standpoint. But uh, I understand, at some level, why 
50-something percent of Catholics believe in it. I think a lot of it is education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is the first time I've talked about it. I, I don't know. I kind of open myself to the Holy Spirit. This may be the first of a, more talks that I do to relay this message. So it's kind of raw tonight. I had no, I don't write talks, but I, I didn't even, I had a little three-point outline on a piece of paper. You couldn't read it. Right, I did it at 4 o'clock today. But, so I, I'm, I think I'm done. It's five after eight. We'll, so we'll start questions. some questions. All these years, this woman never tried to say anything to you or write anything to you or any family members? No. Any kind of remorse? And, and we had representatives with the state of Texas that are in charge of mediation. When you actually meet, we requested to meet with her face-to-face. She wouldn't do it. And one person went up there and she said she saw a little kind of wet part in the corner of her eye and dead silence and the warden butted in and said something and she, she said, I think I lost the moment. She said, maybe after my appeals, we're going to try again, but I, I, at least four people have gone to see her and asked her. Has there been any attempt or determination? that maybe she falls into the mentally ill? Well, that's no, true no, enough. She's like pretty bright. She, 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 she was not mentally ill. She was not mentally ill. I'm familiar with that. They don't do a very good job of diagnosing yeah. that, and so I didn't know if there was anything that maybe helped you to be able to lean in that direction. No, it, it was never an issue because she wasn't. And you know, one of our staff person, husband was murdered and that person was mentally ill and went through a series of trials, so I'm familiar with that process. But you know, there again, the death penalty, no telling what that case costs. I mean, they went through yeah. two whole, I mean, it, it uh, so yeah, question? Uh, now the, the other family members, like her children and all, and your other siblings, how did they deal with this? That, that's a great like question. The only thing that me and my uh, six other, seven of us, and my mother was alive, my dad, had any serious disagreement with was on the death penalty. Oh, we, we, if you take one to 10, 10 being a person that would inject the drugs and one being saying you might go to hell if you believe in it, we probably had a two and a nine and a half in our family at that, at that moment in 1993. So we just kind of agreed not to talk about it. And, uh, between yourselves or in general? Between the family, yeah. yeah. Well, even public beers. I mean, the law is going to do what they're going to do with it. Yeah, so we, just, yeah. we just, we, it's the state yeah. versus Erica Shepard. It wasn't John, yeah. uh, us. Mm-hmm. And so we, we did some campaigning for the maximum penalty. I think if there had been life without parole, we'd have campaigned real hard. We would have come to agreement in our family. But it didn't, we just said, look, we're not going to have a falling out over this. Let the, let the law, yes, sir. Now, I have just a couple of observations. I have thought, I mean, I, I, know, I know the concept of uh, life without parole. I have very mixed feelings because I think that is cruel and unusual punishment. That's my point of view. Might be valid, might be invalid, I might be crazy, I might be not, but that's the way. Hey, that's I think. a valid point. I, personally, I think it should be used, but used less frequently. There are some people that you. you Probably don't want back out there. I mean, I, and I'm in the business of helping people change. I've met with murderers and I've seen them change. But the first, the first comment I wanted to make, uh, which I should have made, is thank you very much for talking to us. I've never heard the arguments that you have put before. Not that I have participated in many meetings like this. This is the second. But I've never heard that people speak so openly and 
without saying, hey, I'm, I'm a very good man or I'm a, I'm a saint or whatever, <laughs> because I'm, of the way I thought my, my changes, yeah. my thoughts changed through the years. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, for, well, thank you for that. I'm just, you know, it's just not very many people that have walked this walk, fortunately. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't volunteer for it, but no, and I'm, yeah. not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not poor me in it either. It's just the way what happened. No, 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 that's the way you are. It, it helped me be a, a better person, but I, I'd be my old, you know what, self if the situation was back. Just generally. Um, so even though there's now life with parole now, like as an option, that's not an option for Erica Shepard. Yeah, because it didn't exist at the time she committed the crime. I, I've thought about it, and I've even asked that question. I, I don't know. I may write to governor for it's over with. So just, the option just to, is still at 35 years. She could potentially. Oh no, there. she's on death row. She she. Oh, okay. No, so if she would have gotten if she would have gotten the other option. Okay. Capital life. Okay. Then when she, in a few years, uh, she eight years from now, she'd be eligible. She'd be eligible. I mean, she's going to get it. So that, that's what the deal was. Eligible, uh, that doesn't mean she will get it. Right, but I didn't want to be eligible. <laughs> no. Okay, I sat through about the similar time frame of uh, your family's experience. A friend of mine, uh, her, she was pregnant, her husband, her two adoptive parents and adoptive sister were murdered. Mm. One night, his whole family? Yes. Mm. Uh, I sat through a lot of the case. Um, it was my friend's biological brother that did it. Brother? Her biological brother. Okay. And he and a friend. And it was all over the news. He was ultimately given the death sentence and about maybe <coughs> eight to 10 years later, they did put him to death. Um, they were smothered and burned, all of them. It was a horrific case. Yeah, I was here locally? Up in Sp Spring in, Branch. Uh, Spring Branch. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, they went to St. Francis Episcopal, I believe, church. Cause our kids were in school there. Um, Maybe I do you know the names of the people I'm talking I about? I can't remember. One time I did. Wentworth. Excuse me? Colson Wentworth. Yes. I, I remember that event. I don't know. Is it a little before or a little after? Same, it's, it's same. It's within a year. Think, yeah, way. same general time frame, yeah, what early 90s. Uh, but the question that, I, that I'm getting at is uh, what they said is uh, my friend and her husband were both murdered in the same room. Therefore, they went after the murder on the two of them as capital because the others took place in separate rooms. Oh, I know so how is it that this woman and man uh, who murdered one person in one place, you know, what, your sister, how is it that they wound up bringing a capital case? Well, because the capital is defined as murder in the, in the, in the, in the uh, action of another crime. They stole a car. If they hadn't stole a car, they wouldn't have got capital murder. It and what, what they did with yours, I think, is multiple murders are capital. It's multiple murders, 
in uh, taking a, place, a, essentially. A murder in the, in the action of another crime. Uh, policemen and children six or under. There's there's four or five, five different conversations there. Multiple. definition can be called. Now, I, I once read where a judge said, see what you see if you like it, but uh, he said that uh, death penalties ought to be reserved for multiple murders, child and child killers, and uh, but I mean who knows? I mean, I, I, like I said, I think life without parole should be used a little more sparingly because I mean I've watched people change in prison, but uh, but that's why she, that's why they got it because they stole a car, so they there's a felony and and the murder and the action of another felony. Uh, okay. One more. Can you possibly go to the slide that you had with the numbers of, murder, of uh, executions? Mm -hmm. I just want to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Please listen to me. I do not want to squirrel or hit or a hornet's nest with my question or my observation. This one or uh, this one? No, no, no. That one. This the one. numbers? The numbers, the numbers. They were, they had how many executed since 76, I think? The one that says 500, that one. That's, that's, that's now, if you, the, the other one, the other one in blue, and <clears throat> this or that, now, just look, one question eh, that, I, that I have always asked myself. Please, how many of those states are Republicans and how many are Democrats? And you will come to a very interesting conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, the, the red ones, are, the red ones are kind of red. <laughs> but it is, it is, I see, I understand and hear your point, but it is interesting that a lot of the bills we're seeing in state legislatures are being introduced by Republicans. Republicans are saying, you know, we run, you know, we're on a, a pro-life platform. The death penalty is a pro-life issue. Um, yes, go ahead. I believe that the other slide that you had up a few minutes ago listed three different um, bills and oh, yeah. I believe they were all by Democrats. Yes, oh, which is for that reason why we don't believe one were those Republican bills and two were Democrats. Two, was it? Yeah. I believe there's a lot I of mean, changes going on in the whole criminal justice well, viewpoints. That is the, the one with colors is very interesting. Yes. But we that, uh, keep going. There, we go. there they There's are. Those, those Dems. There is, oh, there is one. Those Republican Republican one Republican 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 Republican. Two Democrats and one Republican. But the ones that are um, Democrat-led, they're the. It's only Democrats on those bills. So it's for that reason that we don't believe those bills will go anywhere because it, it has to be bipartisan mm -hmm. if it's going to be passed. Um, for example, we in Wyoming um, this past legislative session. Uh, um, two Republican legislators in the state of Wyoming introduced a repeal bill. Um, and the House Speaker, you know, is Republican in Wyoming, and he used to be really supportive of the death penalty, and now he's against it. Um, so it's, it's just, it's very, it's very interesting. You kind of see this, the shift across the country. Oh, yes. um, there, and there's of course, a there lot are, of change going on. Mm -hmm. uh, I happened to go to Washington to speak a couple of weeks ago, not, and, and uh, for prison fellowship as a, on the victim. So but anyway, we did some lobbying, and, but, you can you can kind of sense there's a there's a there's a new wave mainly about all this criminal justice and locking up so many we lock up many more per capita than any country in the world. I mean, why why do we lock up five times the average? Why is it yeah, working? You know, yeah, it, it's not working. Yeah. I tell you what, the best thing for the, that happened to reform the criminal justice was the financial crunch of 2008 
and nine, these states were going broke, and they said, wait a minute, where are we spending our money? Money always brings people to their knees, unfortunately. But, and then that led to more of the practical and moral uh, issues. But I, I'm very optimistic relative to the way it's been in the, in the world that we work in and reducing. You know, Texas has reduced their per capita incarceration by 30% in the last 20 years, per capita. Their level, they're a few less than they were 20 years ago, but our state's grown so much. So they're locking up, I mean, I meet with them, they're locking up a lot of nonviolent criminals, Herschel meets with them, but they don't need to be locked up, they need something else, but, and they keep them too long and then they bring them back on technical violations. There's a lot of problems, but at least uh, for the first time in the last, I'd say four or five years, things seem to be going in a better direction. And I think that'll happen on this death penalty issue. Uh, it just takes a long time. But I hope it's, you know, like bipartisan issue. I hope that there certain parties are not advocating for eliminating the death penalty because their polling numbers are bad. Yeah, you mean for political reasons. Yeah. You mean like she's saying Trump might have been motivated politically to because oh, he made a promise. Oh, yeah. Well, they're all motivated politically. That's yeah. all they yeah, do. All that's, all, that's all they do. You know, you know what the definition of an honest politician? Somebody told me that one that stays bought. That's not really. True. That's just no, one a, that's kind of a crude way to say it. But I mean, they're, they're not. I don't think they're bought and paid for. But they're they're all just political being. A lot of power up there in Washington. They they get to breathe in that stuff, and it's kind of crazy. Well. What's interesting when you talk about politicians in terms of like what are their motivations behind either supporting the death penalty or being against it is so many politicians think, well, like I don't think my constituents care one way or the other about the death penalty. So I guess I'll just like vote either which way, depending on how I feel. So it's that's why it's so, so important for constituents to contact their You're legislators right. and say, like, I really care about this issue and this is how I, as your constituent, want you to vote on it. Or they don't want to be perceived as soft on crime generally, but that's that's getting better. Mm. Sure, they, they well, kept... maybe we need to get them to think about being perceived as smart on crime. Yes, you know, yeah. not just hard or soft. Right. You know, is it the smart? Does it smart. work? Yeah. You know, does it cause less crime? Some of the things you listed that you did earlier, you identified that they cause less crime. So that's what we're after. Yeah. Um, that and I think both people in the parties, us. That's why we're here to try and learn and and become educated a little more. We just need to not have that group think thing. I, I, we I, may be Republican, we may be Democrat, but let's think about it. And, that is and, you one know, of our prison workers yeah. too. <laughs> I I think a lot of change has come about with the improvement of DNA that has proven the number yeah. of innocents oh, yes. that have been locked up for years and years, and had they been executed they would have been innocent still, but they would be dead. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that people are thinking now, well, we have technology now that we didn't have then that maybe proves mm -hmm. more to the point. Well, I, you know. I don't know if anybody saw recently a movie called uh, Trial by Fire. Yes, with Laura Dern. Mm -hmm. I was so impacted by that movie. I don't cry easily. I cried, and at the end of that movie, all I can think is, I don't want to live in Texas. I don't want. I don't want to be a citizen of Texas. You know, because it feels like we are the state that is most, you know, uh, in the opinion yeah. of. Um, we're, and numbers. <laughs> we're just too human. 
to be allowed to do the death penalty mm -hmm. because we mess up. We do. We do mm -hmm. not have any ability to have 100% reliability of someone being uh, uh, guilty or innocent. Mm -hmm. We just don't. We, we do the best that we can and sometimes it looks like as if we've got it completely figured out. Ten years later, something comes along and changes that. And then we have to look back to, oh my gosh, what did we do when we thought we knew what we knew and now we know that we didn't know what we thought we knew. That's not going to stop. We're not going to stop being human in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. and, and to the point of DNA testing, Yes, it is. We have that technology now, but it's not applicable in most cases. In most cases, there is not oh, yeah. the ability there's, for DNA testing. You know, most cases, there's there's no, no DNA. I mean, <laughs> it's not DNA. They don't leave it, wear gloves, and they don't touch it much. It's a kill them. So it's uh, interesting to reconvene in five years and see what see what. Yeah, <laughs> they've made a lot I'll of progress. <laughs> I've happened to get to be a good friend, Sister Helen Frazier, on way back when it started. So anyway, she, she, her, her biggest piece of advice to me had anything to do with the death penalty when I went to prison work was, it's a ministry of presence. Showing up is 50% or more of the deal. Mm -hmm. but you got to show up, you got to show up regular to, if you're going to do any good. It's just the old saying, uh, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so we... Are there any literature on bridges to Yes, I do. I have some there brochures some that's back there. there. And I, I have a book and study guide we use. I've got, you're welcome to have it. Uh, if anybody else wants one, I've got some in the car. But i got some brochures. Uh, We've got enough for everybody. But just got to need one. I've got some in the car. By the way, this is Urshel Red. Brenda Dunn, they're both long-term volunteers of British Life. Urshel's on our board. He's in charge of the uh, development committee, fundraising committee. <laughs> so he, but anyway, Urshel, Urshel goes to prison uh, some weeks three times, and a lot of weeks two times. He, uh, let me see, 14, uh, whatever, he's doing five projects this year. Yeah. He'll go to prison 70 times this year, which is, wow. Wow. some of them aren't very close either. But you know, what we tell the guys and the women, because they're always curious, why did you come out and do this? You know. John hadn't given me a raise in 12 years. We're going to double it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. Two times zero. Two times zero. But they're always curious about why do we do it? And I said for one reason. Well, two reasons. I said, I'm parroting this because we love you. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. Mm. The second reason, more importantly, they're worth it. Yeah. And they think they're worth it. Yeah. That's powerful. It, it yeah. really is. And it, they're, they're covered in shame most of them. You've got to dig in there and do the good thing. They are. You should share what you told me about Tuesday when you were. Yeah, Tuesday I went to uh, the juvenile uh, prison. And uh, Glenn and I did. And I got up and told the boys, I said, How many Astro fans are there? And they raised their hand. And a lot of us did too. I said, where do you think I'd rather be right now? Of course, they said, you'd rather be home watching the game on TV. I said, that is not right. Not even close to right. I'm in the right place. I want you to turn your, I want to help you turn your life around. 
Oh. And that's what this course does. And and that means a lot to those kids. Yeah. Yeah. That I was still our future. I, 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 I haven't told my wife this, but there are two guys <laughs> in this morning. I promise you I would adopt tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. Uh -huh. I think so much in those kids. And they came in, you know, when they first come in, they're kind of like, oh, what this big old old white man? What's he doing? The reason he doesn't tell Janice because his heart's so big, she's going to be afraid he won't do it. She's already raised a whole bunch of them and grandkids. Well, again, she's not the same. Let's do more. I want to say something that I've told John before. You know, I'd do anything to get Marilyn back. I'd trade places with her. I just know how close they were and how much love there was between them. But her legacy lives on through John and what he has mm -hmm. done. I mean, next month we're going to have our 50,000th graduates. She'd be so proud. Think of, yeah. Oh, yes. She's, she's, she's still, still involved, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's very much involved. Yeah. Still involved. Yeah. Well, it's a great tribute to her. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think God arranges these things. I think he gets involved after these things happen. He tries to make something positive out of something negative. Yeah. I, I'd like to take a minute and tell them why I got involved with Bridges to Life. Linda's one of our uh, um, one of our senior volunteers. Yes. You're gonna get you're gonna get an award. Uh, one of you, one of you, you gotta make it one or two more years. Yeah, just two more, two more. Uh, before I came to Houston, I was a bailiff, and so I saw the other side of the prison. And the first day that I was working in court, I was walking down the hall and I heard this chink, 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 chink coming in. I thought, what is that? And I turned around and these babies, they looked like babies, 10, 11, 12 year olds, shackled, waist, legs, shoved with love. We went into court and there sat their parents who could not look at them, and they could not look at the children. But they, they heard what was happening to them, they heard the, the progress that was going on. So that didn't take very long, we shuffled out. A little bit later, chink, 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 teenage, teenage children, still babies, teenage. I had five children, teenagers. Shackled, leg chains. Same thing. Parents come look at their children at the in the box. They couldn't make contact. They couldn't talk to them. Either way. This went on all day, and they gradually got older and older and older. And then we came to the 25, 30 year olds who out in the hall, Mama was saying, hurry, we've got to hurry because Daddy's coming to prison today and we get to see him. Mm. Chink, 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 come in. There's a baby, dear Daddy. And they, please remove that child. They can't have any, any look with them, no, no contact. And yet they come. Until finally, this went on all day long until finally I saw old men who could hardly walk. Chink, 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 chink. 
And I thought, dear God, there has to be something better than this. So when I moved to Houston, I asked my priest if they had a prison ministry. And he said, no, unfortunately, we don't. But there's an organization you might want to look into, Bridges to Life. And I looked into Bridges to Life, and Beverly Barnes at that time was yeah. their coordinator. We met, and uh, she asked me if I was had been a, a victim of crime. And I said, no, but I've seen victims. And I have also seen criminals. Mm -hmm. And I have seen a progression of criminals who have gone, it's like a revolving door. And there has to be something better. So I'm happy to say that I was accepted as a volunteer, and I've been a volunteer 13 years yeah, I now. I thought you were getting close to 15. <laughs> and um, what these people need to realize is John has never turned down somebody <laughs> volunteering. I, I have seen it, but I feel like he was accepted. Yes, unless you breathe fire, unless you physically attack me, we won't turn you down. I have come to realize that, and I, age is no problem because no. I'm now 84 years old, <laughs> and he still hadn't hit me. Well. She's gonna, she's gonna hit the magic bar next year. We have some special people in the town. Jennifer volunteered, our, our uh, St. Michael's person, staff person. She volunteered for us uh, a number of prisons with Urschel and before she got married and started having kids. She's your wife. She's done, she's done men, she's done women, she's done children. Explain the difference between the juvenile program Okay, the juvenile program is totally different because juveniles are there and it's it's not big boy prison yet. It's they're in a totally different situation. Right. And if and they still have a lot more opportunity to get that record expunged and to to make a new life and to make yeah. a start. Yeah. It wouldn't be easy because they're going back to the same population. But they have much more of a chance than if they've gone to federal prison and on in that. And um, the likelihood of them going back in the same environment and not in, a lot of them say, well, it was just a family business. Yeah. They're high but, risk. They're very high they're risk. Very high risk. Yeah. My dad, my mom, my grandma, everybody. And I had one kid say, everybody except an uncle of mine has been oh, in yeah. prison and we don't have anything to do with him. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's the other way around. Yeah, he's, he's, he's the outlier. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so they, and these kids now especially sort of look at it like, well, <laughs> this isn't anything, you know. This yeah, is, prison, no big deal. Right. Of well, the principles of curriculum are the same, but the way we deliver it is different. The graphic novel. The, the, the principles in the juvenile oh, are the same, the, we, but the delivery is We have a graphic, graphic look for the, the kids because in introducing the adult material, 
it was really above them. They couldn't grasp anything. So we have this comic book-like thing. And it's, it's amazing because most of them will say, well, I was born in That could be me or who is Tony or... And he's just a fictional person. He comes from a woman, but he could be any one of us. Yeah. So, anyway, it's... Uh, Peter, I've seen some of the ones that you said. Oh, oh, with the... You said W.W. Young. Yeah. Yeah. Women's Guild? Yeah. With the older... Oh, wait, wait, oh, no, no, I didn't know what yeah. I said. Thank you, thank you. Everyone, if I... If I could just grab yeah, your attention yeah, for a couple more minutes. Thank you so much for sharing, and thank you, everyone who shared their thoughts and questions. Um, I do have a couple concrete action steps I really want to impress upon you tonight because they do help. Um, first, well, we have, we have materials on the table, including our Respect Life Month toolkit, which talks about how you can bring the death penalty in your Respect Life Month conversations, which is October. Um, but really, I encourage everyone, if you haven't already signed, is our National Catholic Pledge to End the Death Penalty. Um, this, you know, adds, adds your name to a growing list of over 25,000 Catholics who've pledged their support for ending the death penalty. Um, and then please sign up for our Mercy in Action Project, which is a monthly email that we send out um, that has a list of upcoming executions for that coming month. And you can click on the name in the email and it will bring you to an electronic letter that's pre-written and all you have to do is fill out um, your name and your address and you can modify the letter if you want to personalize it, which we encourage to do so. And then you submit it, you just hit submit, and it goes to the governor or the board of pardons and paroles. Um, so I really, really encourage you to do that. And actually, we have two executions coming up on um, Wednesday, October 30th. One of them is um, uh, Ray Jefferson Cromarty in Georgia. And then the other is a man named Ruben Gutierrez here in Texas. Um, and since you are in Texas and live here, if you could send a letter on behalf of Ruben, who also lives here, I would so, so appreciate that as well. So you can go to our website tonight, um, catholicsmobilizing.org, which all, that website is on all of our materials back there. Um, and it, it literally takes 30 seconds. Um, yes? I've got a question, I guess, for both of you presenters. When you have people in prison who have done some of these absolutely horrific crimes, mm -hmm. if there is no death penalty for monstrous horrific crimes, and as you have mentioned that uh, you're feeling that life in prison without possibility of parole is cruel and unusual punishment. What's an alter What's uh, uh, the alternative? The alternative is they, they always have a, a chance for parole at some point. I mean, they can stall it for 35, 40, 35 years, 40 years, but you know, even if they give them a life sentence of 60 years, they... they life sentence, sometimes they're out in 20. Yeah, I've, I've, I've met murderers that got out in 14, 15 years, and I sat with them before. Yeah. So I, there's no, I knew the warden real well that uh, he, he administered close to 100 executions. He's a great guy. He, he didn't believe in death, but that was his job. He said his number one complaint is just not meted out fairly. We, we've had people in our groups that did about the same thing as people that get executed. So it's, it's, a, it's 
depends on what county you're in and yeah. what color you are and who you got to defend you. I mean, it's what state you're in. When you first experienced in, when you brought into a prison, how much did you watch when you said you were Not much at all. You did a little bit the first time, but it, it's not, you know, we, we've been in thousands and thousands of times and never had an inappropriate touch, but uh, the first time going in, you're a little nervous. Um, Some prisons are a lot more uh, minimum than others. Uh, although Jennifer went into a maximum, her, her, we got one real maximum in this area, and she, she took that in. one on the first time. But uh, well, you anyway. go into like an auditorium, right? Yeah, we never isolate people. Oh. We we're all we go in together, come out together, and we sit in small groups within sight of each oh, other. We put two facilitators with ten inmates. We might have fifty in the project. We break up in groups of ten, and they go through this curriculum. Be happy for you to take a book and study that if you like. It shows exactly what we We go through accountability counseling and professional friends, and we have scripture every week. We're not a Bible study, we don't preach, but if it's if the week's on confession and scripture we're about confession. I think I've heard Janet and Bobby, they were very involved in Janet Bobby Norton? Yeah. Yeah, they are not in Irish, but they do jail ministry downtown. I thought they did um, juvenile delinquents. Well, they do that too. They, they, I, I, actually, I actually feel safer in prison than I do at Walmart. <laughs> yeah, you probably yeah, less chance of getting hurt. My goodness, what are you afraid of the children, madam? Because those are the people running all over the place. Walmart's got some criminals that are on the loose. <laughs> 